Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. I'm Pastor Ben. It's my privilege this morning to share God's truth with you. And I, I want you to know something about me, something that I've really come to know about myself over the last three years, that being a dad is actually a lot of fun, which is something new that I'm discovering because if you talk to the three-year younger version of me, he would not have been in agreement with you because I did not see parenthood in this light. And part of the reason that I did not see parenthood in this light is because I used to do student ministry in church. That was, that was my focus ministry in the church setting, whether it was fifth grade all the way up to college age, I would care and love for these kids in all sorts of different churches across America. And we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids at a time. And honestly, just by doing that, I was completely fulfilled. And I thought, I don't need my own kids. In fact, I don't want my own kids because that job was kind of stressful. And when I thought about raising a child, I didn't view it as something that was going to bring joy to my life or even be fun. I just thought as one more responsibility. And I had enough responsibility already. I wasn't interested in one more. But, you know, when I switched to adult ministry and focused on just doing stuff like this, like I'm doing today, I realized there was a part of my job that I was never going to have back that I really, really loved. And that was the interaction from week to week with the students. I loved talking to the students. I loved hearing about their week at school. I loved that. And one of my favorite things to do was to tease the students. I loved it. Now, not in a mean-spirited way that made them feel bad, but in, in a, a way that was playful and fun. And I wanted to, them to know that they were seen and they were heard and they were loved. And I loved interacting with them this way. And so I, when I went into adult ministry and doing things like this for you guys, I missed that. And so when I finally, it was time for me to have my own kids, I was very excited because that meant I had a three-year-old and a two-year-old to tease. And I love doing that when my wife is not there. Because when my wife is there, this is what I hear. She goes into mom mode and she says something like this. She says, Ben, you can't tease the kids. They're too young. And because they're so young, they can't tell if you're telling the truth or not. Right? They can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not. Whatever you tell them, they're going to assume that you are telling them the truth. Which, of course, I just simply respond, well, if I don't tease them now, they won't have practice to figure out what is teasing and what is not later on. You know, that's kind of my theory. Now, who's right? The answer is, my wife is right. I know that. They're at this beautiful age where they trust absolutely everything. And if you've raised kids or you're, if you're in the heat of it right now, or if you have grandkids, you're probably remembering that when those kids are that young, 
they will believe anything that you say. In fact, Jesus takes this beautiful truth and he says it like this. He says, unless you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is Jesus saying when he says these words? What he's not saying is that we have to get younger. What he's not saying is that we have to get to heaven before we reach a certain age. And he's definitely not saying you need to act childish. What he's saying is you need to have that trust like a child. You need to trust me like a two-year-old, like a three-year-old trusts their dad, even when they probably shouldn't. You need to have that type of trust. Because when we're younger, that's the type of trust we have. You see, we'll believe it if someone tells us. But when we get older, things shift and things happen to us and we become grown up and we begin to see the world differently. And instead of seeing the world as if, hey, I'll believe it if you tell me, we make this shift that happens over time to, I'll only believe it if you show me. And that doubt and that distrust creeps into our life. Today, we're going to go into part three of our sermon series, The Invitation. And we're going to struggle and wrestle with that very real tension together of how distrust and doubt creeps into our mind. And I think we're going to find ourselves in this piece of history that we're going to read about in Mark chapter 8. This is what we read. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, asking him for a sign from heaven to test him. So, here come the Pharisees. These are the big deal guys of that day. And they come up to Jesus and they say, show us a sign. In other words, their philosophy is just like many of our philosophies when we're older, is I'll believe it when I see it. And now Jesus has gone around and he said things like the Father and I are one. In other words, he's saying that I am God in the flesh. Now, if we had somebody that came into our lives, into our work, into our schools and said, I am God, what would we say? We'd say, yeah, prove it. Right, go ahead. If you're really God, then show me. And so when the Pharisees say this, it's completely reasonable. Right, okay, Jesus, you say you're God, so show me. Right, we'll believe it when we see it. Now here's the problem. The Pharisees did see it, but they still didn't believe it. In fact, just before we get to this section in the book of Mark, what has happened? There's this great crowd, 4,000 plus people, and they get hungry. And in that crowd was all sorts of people, right? There was believers, there was non-believers, there was people on the fence, there were skeptics, and more than likely, there were Pharisees in this crowd. Likely, some of these people who are having the same conversation with Jesus. And they're in this crowd and they get hungry. So what is Jesus going to do? he's going to feed them. But the problem is he only has seven loaves and three fish. And so he prays for the fish. He prays for the bread. He hands it out. He does this amazing, undeniable miracle that everyone eats their fill and there's leftovers. And what's the response of the Pharisees? Right, we'll believe it when we see it. But somehow they've seen it, but they don't believe it. So what's the disconnect here? Well, the disconnect that the Pharisees have is the same disconnect that we have. You see, as humans, we're so quick to see something amazing 
even miraculous, and then we just write it off. Right, that doubt creeps in, and then we just say, well, it must have been, I don't know, maybe there's some secret food there. And we think of all the reasons that maybe something like this might not actually be miraculous. In fact, you've done this before, right? You've tested God in this way. Maybe it was something like this. You prayed a prayer where you said, God, if you do this very specific thing, then I'll believe you, right? I'll believe it when I see it. So God, do this very specific thing, and then when you do, I'll believe. But if you don't, I won't believe. And we've all done this. Sometimes we have a crisis of faith, or sometimes we're, we're thinking, you know what, I, I think I might actually follow this Jesus. I think I, think I might actually become a Christian, but I want to do one last test. And so we get specific. We look at the forecast and we see it's supposed to be really sunny, no clouds, zero chance of precipitation. And so we pray, God, you know what? If I come outside and it is pouring rain, then I know you're real. And then I'll follow you. Or then I, I know that you're trustworthy. Or we say, you know what? God, I'm riddled with cancer and all the doctors say I have 0% chance of living. But if you heal me, then I'll believe. Or God, I'm sitting here with my wife and we've been struggling to have kids and all the doctors are saying it's not gonna happen. But God, if you give me a child, then I'll believe you. And guess what happens? It rains, we're cancer-free, and we're holding our child. But yet, we still struggle with doubt and we still explain these things away. This is where the Pharisees were. This is where we are oftentimes. And so Jesus responds. He says this, why does this generation ask for a sign? Now, as they ask him this, he sighs deeply. He's not mad. He's not angry. He's sad. He's disappointed for them. Why is he disappointed for these individuals? Because he wants them to believe. He wants them to experience everything that he has to offer for him, the full table of transformation that only Jesus can offer. That's what he wants to give to them. But yet he shows them time and time and time again who he is, and they reject him, and they explain it away, and doubt creeps in. And it bothers Jesus just like it bothers him when, when we do the exact same thing, when he shows up in an amazing way and we just simply quickly explain it away and we doubt and we move on. Imagine if these Pharisees, right, these guys were elite. They had a lot of influence. They were incredibly educated, like at the doctorate level. These guys were geniuses. Imagine if they would have just bought in Imagine if they would see these miracles and believe and that doubt wouldn't creep in and they would hold on to Jesus. Imagine not only the transformation that they could experience in their life, but imagine what they could bring to the world. And this is why Jesus, he, he's so disappointed. And so he responds, truly I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. And getting into the boat again, he went across to the other side. So he says to them, no more signs, 
No more signs for you. He calls them this generation. He says, no more signs for you Pharisees, right? No more miracles. I'm done. Now, why does he say that? Because it literally does not matter what he shows them. They will not believe it even if they see it. Now, how do we know this? Because he's not done actually showing the world miracles. He doesn't shut down after this point in time and never do a miracle again. He just never puts a miracle specifically focused on the Pharisees. You see, he would do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, including the most amazing miracle of all. He would predict his death and resurrection, pull it off, come back to life, walk around, interact with the people, stand right in front of the Pharisees, and guess what they would do? They would explain it away. And so he says to him, I'm not going to waste my time giving you miracles because even if I show you, even if I stand right in front of you, you're not going to believe. As I've been dwelling on this section of scripture this week, I, I was challenged by it, and maybe you will be too. But I was thinking, how many times in my own life has God shown up in a powerful way? Right? He's done something undeniable. Maybe it was experience. Maybe I prayed one of those prayers. Maybe he shows up. Maybe I, I went and I heard a sermon or I went to a conference and I thought, God, I'm, you know, I'm never going to be the same. I'm, I'm so on fire for you. I believe in you. It is undeniable that you are who you say you are. And before you know it, I've explained it away, right? It must have been something I ate. I must have been just having a dream. And we have all these reasons not to believe that God can do something miraculous. And I wonder if he's thinking, well, fine. If you're not going to believe it, even if I show up right in front of you, if I do these amazing things, well, then I just won't do them for you anymore. And I wonder how many times in my life have I missed out on something miraculous because... I've explained it away, I've ignored it, and doubt has crept in. Well, the story is not done. Now, the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, as we work through this piece of history, this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and his disciples, we've kind of stepped into the, the drama portion already, but now we're going into the comedy now, this is why this is funny. Remember what's just happened, right? Just a moment ago, there was this large crowd. They were hungry, and so Jesus does this miracle, this undeniable miracle. Seven loaves, three fish, feeds everyone. There's a whole bunch left over, including seven full baskets of food, right? There was plenty of food that the disciples had, these apostles had, that they could take with them. And guess what they did? They forgot them, didn't they? And they do what we do. You get hungry, you look for food, and then you realize, oh no. Have you done this before? I know I have. You go to Olive Garden, and they bring out all the breadsticks, and you shove your face full of the breadsticks, don't you? We all do. You don't, don't feel ashamed. It's just part of being at Olive Garden. And then you eat the soup, or you pick the salad, and you just fill yourself up. And then they bring your food. And what do you think? What do you say? What do you think? I can't possibly eat this. So they say, well, would you like us to wrap it up? And you say, yes. And they're so used to this because this is the typical 
process at Olive Garden. So they wrap up your food, you pay your check, you go home. The next morning is about noon or maybe it's dinner time and you are so excited because you remember you have this wonderful meal from Olive Garden waiting for you. And you go and you open up the fridge and guess what's not there? Your meal from Olive Garden. And it's not because your wife ate it first. It's because you left it on the table at Olive Garden, didn't you? And you've all done this before. Your stomach growls and you are so disappointed. And this is exactly what these, these disciples are going through. They're sitting in the boat. They're traveling across this lake. They get hungry and they're thinking, you know what? No problem. We have all these basketfuls of bread and fish from that miracle, and we're going to be in great shape. They start looking around, and they realize they don't have anything. They only have one loaf, which is not going to feed them. And so they start pointing at each other and blaming each other. Peter, you're so forgetful. How could you have forgotten all the food? James and John, you were so busy being loud and obnoxious, you forgot to actually get your job done. And they're blaming and pointing and, and they're accusing each other of this. And Jesus hears them. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. So Jesus hears these apostles arguing back and forth about this silly thing of forgetting the food. And he decides to use it as a teaching moment. Now, what kind of teaching moment would you expect in this moment of time? You'd expect Jesus to stop and give a teaching on responsibility, right? You guys, you need to follow through. Someone needs to look at the details. When you see the food, you wrap it up, you bring it home, you bring it with us, right? We could be eating that right now, but instead we aren't because you guys are irresponsible. That's the, we, we expect him to say. That's the teaching moment that we would expect to hear. But instead, he says this strange thing about the yeast of the Pharisees which doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But we shouldn't feel bad about that because it did not make sense to the apostles either. They had no idea what was going on. Now, I don't want to leave you in the dark. I want to get you guys up to speed with what's happening here. And if you're a baker, you might have an inkling of what Jesus is saying. You see, the yeast is a small little ingredient that you put into your baking goods, right? You put it into your bread and it works its way through the bread and what happens? Your bread rises. It grows, right? That's what yeast does. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's talking about this little tiny thing that made its way into the hearts of the Pharisees and began to grow. And this tiny little yeast that he's talking about is doubt. Doubt made its way into the Pharisee's heart and it began to grow and grow and grow and grow so that they could explain away literally anything. Any miracle that Jesus would do, they would explain away because the doubt had overcome them. And how would it spread? Well, they were very intentional about this spread. They wanted anyone who's a follower of Christ to also have the same doubt. And if they would let that doubt into their heart, it would grow and grow and grow and grow and they would simply just explain it away. So Jesus gets done with this masterful teaching, and here's the disciples' response. They said to one another, it is because we have no bread. Imagine Jesus, the master teacher, gives this eloquent, 
beautiful statement about doubt, gives them this warning, and their response is, oh, he must be telling us that we are irresponsible, we don't have any bread, and he's doing it in this weird, passive-aggressive way that we don't get. Imagine what Jesus is thinking. Now, I'm not as patient as Jesus, and I know what I'd be thinking. I have made 12 really bad decisions. Right, if these guys who are the elite ones who've been walking with me through life, if they can't get this simple teaching, then I'm wasting my time. I would take the boat, row to shore, drop them off, get off, find 12 better guys, start over, teach them that lesson, and if they got it, then we're good to go. Right, that's what I'd be thinking. Now, Jesus is much more patient than with me, than I am, but listen, he's kind of on the same wavelength. He says this, and becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? Jesus, he's patient, but he's frustrated, right? What's wrong with your heart? Is it not open? What's wrong with your ears? Do not hear. What's wrong with your eyes? Do not see. What's wrong with your mind? Do you, do you not comprehend this? Why don't you get this? And he's not done. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. Two times, Jesus does this amazing miracle where he basically makes food appear out of thin air. He feeds these large crowds, and these apostles have seen every one of these moments in history. But yet they still have this doubt. They still have this doubt that Jesus can't produce food for them, can't take care of them. But for Jesus, food is never a part of the conversation. The point is not just simply to feed us, right? He's thinking about much bigger things. He's thinking about their eternal relationship with him, right? Life-changing, life-giving things. And so he closes with this. Then he said to them, do you not yet understand? Why don't you get this? You've seen the crowds. You've heard all the teachings. You've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. We've walked through life together. We eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. You are my students. I am your rabbi. Every moment of every day, I'm showing you amazing new things. How do you not get this? How do you not get who I am? Well, the reason they don't understand is the same reason that we don't understand. You see, all throughout history, it's the same story. From the Old Testament to the New Testament to today, God shows up, he does something amazing, and we respond, God, you are amazing. My life is gonna be changed. I'm never gonna go back. And then guess what happens? Doubt creeps in, we explain it away, and everything's exactly the same. In the Old Testament, a great example of this is the Israelites. They're in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, 400 years. They cry out to God, God does these amazing miracles to the point that Pharaoh's like, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. They go out into the desert. 
God continues to provide for them in miraculous ways. And then guess what happens? Doubt creeps in. They lose that trust. They explain it away. And they say, please take us back to slavery. In the New Testament, the apostles are a great example. How many times in the New Testament does, does Jesus say to them over and over and over again, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back to life. And what happens? He dies on the cross. He comes back to life. And guess what? Oh, he's a ghost. Right? They have this doubt. They explain it away. They have this distrust come into their lives. In our modern day, we're no different, are we? We saw the rain. We're cancer-free. The child is sitting next to us, and we still doubt. Time and time again, Jesus shows up in amazing ways. We go to that conference, we hear that sermon, we read that book, and we are convinced that there's no going back. We will never have doubt. We will always trust, and then we explain it away, and we struggle. And this is confusing to us, isn't it? Because you would think once you, you receive the inf- invitation of Jesus and you say yes to Jesus and you're following Jesus, you're, you go to church every Sunday, you read your Bible, you're in a life group, you're doing everything right, you would assume that you wouldn't have any doubts whatsoever. But far too often, that yeast of the Pharisees creeps in. And we begin to have the posture of the Pharisees. And we think, you know what, Jesus? I'll believe it when I see it. And then we see it and we don't believe it. But this is where Christians make this subtle shift. You see, instead of thinking, I believe it when I'll see it, you see how Christians see the world is, I believe it, so I see it. You see, when you begin to trust your heavenly father and see the world through this lens, you begin to see him working in all sorts of miraculous ways in your life and in the world around you. And when you make this shift, you begin to see God at work and the doubt goes away and the trust begins to fill within you as God invites you into his grander story. Hey